Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Good evening. It's great to see you here on a Monday night of Missions Conference, and we're looking forward to sharing God's Word with you this evening. Let's take our Bibles and go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. I can't resist saying a word about uh, Dalmas and Flo and their presentation tonight. You know, we're talking about the three-legged stool of missions, and I pointed out that if you pull away one of the legs, then you have defeated the biblical concept of missions. If you add another leg to it, you confuse things. And some people will often ask, where does training leaders in a Bible college fit in the three-legged stool? It is part of discipleship. And it's a very important part of discipleship. We looked at evangelism yesterday morning, discipleship last night. And tonight we're looking at the third leg, which is church planting. And I know uh, we've been to Puerto Rico. We were there shortly after that hurricane that they talked about. And, and we were right by the college there at Calvary and saw some of the devastation. And the reality is that ministry is committed to planting churches all around the Caribbean. So I'm so excited that they were able to be a part, and I certainly enjoyed them. And I think Dalmas is very wise to go with the flow. I think that's a really great idea. Matthew chapter 16 tonight, as we look at the third of the three-legged stool legs of missions, and that is church planting. A very familiar passage tonight, but one that is quite debated and one that to some people is a little bit confusing. So let's go tonight. We'll begin reading in verse 13, Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, or Elijah, or others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's pray this evening as we ask God to help us in understanding this wonderful passage and the truth of church planting. Father, I pray tonight in this subject which is so very close to your heart that you would help us to understand and believe and embrace and, Father, be committed to biblical church planting. And, Father, I pray that you would uh, teach us tonight from your word and motivate our hearts to love you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is astonishing to me when you talk with people about the concept of church, that for many folks, even some in fundamentalism, they think of a building. 
But folks, the New Testament church is not a building. Now, if people are a little more uh, seriously religious in their family background, when they hear the word church, they may think of a denomination. For example, I was from an unchurched family growing up, and when I got saved, I was saved through the ministry of a Southern Baptist church. But in the Southern Baptist denomination that I was in until I was 17 and became a fundamentalist, uh, if you talked about the church, you were not talking about an individual church, you were talking about the Southern Baptist Convention in the minds of many people. And so there's a lot of confusion about this use of this word church, and so we need to understand it in a biblical concept because church planting is God's end game for missions. So what is the word? The word is in the Greek ekklesia, and it means a called out assembly. And the primary use, about 90-some percent of the time in the New Testament, is referencing a local assembly, such as the church at Jerusalem or the church at Antioch or the churches that Paul and his ministry team planted. It is primarily in the New Testament focusing on local assemblies that have been called out by God. And yet in Matthew 16, most scholars agree that Christ is speaking not of an individual local church that he will build, but the collective church that he will build that will actually meet on the day when the rapture takes place. Now there's a lot of discussion in, in fundamental Baptist circles about is there such a thing as a universal church? And I will not seek to solve all those questions that are asked tonight, but I will say this. There is coming a day when the rapture takes place that every believer in the church age who has been called out and saved by God, they will assemble at the rapture, and at the rapture they will be a universal church at that time. And we understand that. But in this economy that we're living in today, God's emphasis is on the local assembly. So in this passage, Christ is talking about that church that will meet at the rapture throughout the church age, all believers who come to Christ, and he is teaching the disciples some very important spiritual truths about church planting. And if we would understand this text, it probably would be good that we would set aside some of our preconceived ideas and just let the text speak for itself as we come to the conclusions tonight about Christ doing church planting. And the first thing we notice, and it's really not, uh, not a, a main point of the message, it is the message, is this. Church planting is Christ building his church. Churches do not send, uh, mission agencies do not send missionaries. Churches send missionaries. And yet really it's the Lord that sends the missionaries. And we talk about church planting, and we talk about missionaries doing church planting, but folks, Jesus did not say in our text, my missionaries will build my church. He said, I will build my church. So church planting is Christ planting churches. And we thank the Lord that he does use people. He allows us to partner with him at home and abroad in this wonderful ministry of Christ planting churches. So tonight, I want us to understand five great truths about Christ planting his church, and those all have application for us in the local assemblies that we're seeking to see established across the world. Number one, I want us to see tonight 
the foundation of his church. He says in verse 18, And I say unto thee, Peter, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. He's talking about a foundation. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Christ is talking about the rock foundation of the church that he's going to build. And this is a highly debated text across what would be called Christendom, especially relating to Catholic teaching. The Catholic Church teaches that in this text, Peter is the foundation of the church. That is their essential doctrine. And yet it's very interesting in this passage, when Christ is speaking to Peter, he is using a play on words. The word Peter, the name Peter, is the word Petros, thou art Petros, and it is in the masculine gender. And yet in the next phrase, he says, and upon this rock I will build my church. It's the word Petra, which is in the feminine. Now, if you really believe that Peter is the foundation of the church, you have to believe in this passage that Christ is causing Peter to become transgender from going from masculine to feminine. And that's not a good position to take. Christ is actually having a play on words in this passage, and he is using the feminine form to point out that there is something else that is, that is not masculine in gender, that is the rock upon which the church will be built. One commentator, John Polhill, said this, Peter could not be the rock upon which the church is built, because Simon Peter in the Gospels looks more like a sand pile than a rock, and he does. So what is this rock? What is this foundation upon which Christ is going to build his church? Now, anytime we interpret the Scripture, we need to do it in the immediate context, and Christ is walking through the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is a collection of villages that were named collectively in honor of Caesar and the Tetrarch Philip. Uh, there was already a Caesarea by the sea, and Philip wanted to honor Caesar, so he called it Caesarea, and he added his name to it. And, and that's very politically wise on Philip's part. So it was a collection of villages. And Christ is walking in this region, and as they walk, they come to that massive bedrock at the base of Mount Hermon. It, it is a huge rock edifice out of which flows the beginning of the Jordan River. And there, there is a cave, and it is called Pan's Cave, so much so that the, the area is called originally Banyas or Panyas. It's named in honor of Pan, uh, the Greek god who is half goat and half man. And, you know, I never could understand why the Greeks would worship a god who, who danced around on little goat's feet and played a panpipe. That, to me, is not a very appealing god. But nonetheless, Pan's cave was there, and the ancient Greeks believed that that cave was the entrance to hell, and they called it the gates of hell. And so Christ is walking through there, and he says, Peter, you're a rock. Peter, you're not like this massive bedrock. As a matter of fact, Peter, you got a lot of problems, I'm sure Christ could have said. But he said, upon this rock, a massive boulder... I will build my church. And he's telling Peter and the disciples about the foundation. 
So the question would be, what is the feminine form that would be used as the foundation of the church? And most scholars are agreed that it is Peter's confession of the deity of Christ. So you can argue that the foundation of the church is Peter's confession that's made here, but really the concept is the deity and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's founded on Christ. He is the rock. He is the bedrock. And we know that that plays out biblically because as we saw yesterday morning on the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the church, when the foundation was laid and the Spirit came in power, what did Peter preach? He preached the deity, the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Peter was saying in Acts chapter 2, Christ is the rock upon which the church is founded. The Ryrie Study Bible agrees, saying, Jesus does not say upon you, Peter, or upon your successors, but upon the rock of divine revelation and faith in Jesus Christ as God, I will build my church. So the foundation is the Lord Jesus. The massive bedrock at Caesarea Philippi was simply a picture of the greatness of our rock. One commentator said that when they put Christ on the cross and he died for our sins and, and they put him in that tomb, that heavy, cumbersome stone that sealed Jesus in the realm of death was nothing but a pebble compared to the rock of ages that came forth from that cave that day. Jesus is the rock and upon him the church is built. The second thing we find in our text as Jesus builds his church is the formation of the church because in verse 18, he says, upon this rock, I will build. And it's talking about the active building of Christ, of his church throughout the church age. So Christ is the foundation, but he's also the designer and the builder. You know, I remember when your facility here was being built And I remember talking to your pastor at the time and some of the challenges of design and some of the challenges of building. And uh, we, we built a very similar complex in South Bend, Indiana that, that took a similar amount of time to your work here. And, and it's an amazing thing to design and to build. And yet the complexity of the church of Jesus Christ is far greater And it has taken the wisdom of God to build his church. And that's what he's saying. He says, I will build my church. So think about it for a moment. The, the ministry of the Trinity in building the church. The church was planned in eternity past by God the Father. We know that as we saw in Acts chapter 2 that uh, Peter answering the un asked question about if he was God, why did he let us kill him? Peter said it was by the, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that Christ died. In eternity past, Jesus was decided by God the Father to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And God the Father determined that it would be built upon his son, Jesus Christ. We know that from Ephesians 1.4, where Paul says, according as he the Father in context, have chosen us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world. Folks, do you realize God planned his church before the foundation stone of this world was ever laid? 
it was planned that he would build his church. So the church was planned in eternity past by God the Father, and the church was purchased in time past by God the Son. That's Acts 20, 28. You know the passage. Uh, Paul is speaking for the last time to the Ephesian pastors, and he's telling them that they will see his face no more, and he is encouraging them. And he says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which Christ hath purchased with his own blood. Folks, Jesus purchased the church his bride with his own blood in time past. But thirdly, we learn in the New Testament that the church is not only planned in eternity past by the Father and purchased in time past by the Son, but it is being put together in time present by God the Holy Spirit. Christ sent the Spirit of God to birth the church, and he is building that church. We saw yesterday morning in Acts 2, uh, Acts 2 the, the beginning of the church and, and its founding. We didn't get over to the end of the chapter, but it says in Acts 2.47, And the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. You see, the church wasn't just built in those 3,000 that got saved on the day of Pentecost. But every day there were people being saved, and the master builder was building his church. And that continues today in this place and around the world. As a matter of fact, Peter, many years later, would use the imagery of the rock and Christ building his church. 1 Peter 2.5, Peter says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. So can you hear it tonight? If you listen carefully, you can hear the master builder, the master stonemason, he is building his church, and he is laying one living stone upon another. It's happening in Kenya. It's happening in Peru. It's happening in the islands. It's happening in Chandler, Arizona. Jesus is building his church. And what a great thing Christ is doing in the foundation and the building of his church. So the formation of his church I will build my church. Then thirdly, in verse 18, we find the fellowship, the, the foundation, the formation, now the fellowship. He says, upon this rock I will build my church. You know, Pastor, I forgot to look at what time I started, so I have no clue where I am as far as my time tonight. So I'm just going to get through the five points. Is that okay with you? You are so nice to me. Thank you. This word church in Matthew 16 is a very interesting word. It's ecclesia, and in many ways, it was a new concept to the disciples. Now, they, they knew the word ecclesia, but you've got to remember that the disciples were a group of people who were expecting Jesus, the Messiah, to come and to overthrow Rome and establish his earthly kingdom over which they would rule and reign with him. They were not thinking about the church. As a matter of fact, Jesus walking, as you study the text, in this region of Caesarea Philippi, they're walking in the villages, and he is telling them about his coming death and burial, and they're arguing over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. These guys did not get it. And so Christ here is saying to them, I am going to build my church. What is that, Lord? Well, Ecclesia, it is a called-out assembly. 
And we need to remember that it is that. It is a fellowship of called out ones. Dr. H. Griffith Thomas defined the church, Thomas defined the church as a society or a fellowship of saved sinners. Now, it's very interesting to me. We saw in Acts chapter 2 yesterday morning Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, but we ran out of time and, and we didn't get to the conclusion of what Peter gave us the invitation. But Peter preached, you remember, those four points of the gospel message, and they said to him, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter was giving to them a threefold necessity of action in their soul if they would become a part of the church. And so from that, we learn that the local church, based on the teaching about what will be the universal church, the local church is uniquely exclusive in its fellowship. Folks, it is a, the local church is very exclusive. What does that mean? Not everybody can join it. Peter says there are three things, Acts 2.38, in the beginning of the church. Number one, you need to repent. And that word repent means to have a change of mind, and the word is to be used in the context of the passage in which it's given. So what were they to repent of? Well, Peter said Jesus is God. They hadn't believed that. They needed to repent and start believing that he's God. They thought his death on the cross was the death of a criminal. They needed to change their mind and believe that his death was the efficacious atoning for their sins. They thought his body had been stolen by the disciples. They needed to repent and believe that he was raised bodily from the dead. And they thought Jesus was just another criminal. They needed to repent and know that he is exalted as the supreme judge of the universe, that he's been made Lord in Christ. And folks, you cannot be a part of the church until there is repentance and faith. And Peter says this repentance will result in someone taking their public stand for that truth in the waters of baptism. Baptism in this text, Acts 2.38, does not save, but it is the public testimony of true repentance and faith. But then he says there's something else. There has to be remission. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You have to have your sins washed away, and it's only in the blood of Christ. And then thirdly, he says, You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We call that theologically regeneration. So a person to become a part of the true church has to change their thinking about Jesus and his way of salvation and put their trust in him, having their sins washed away, and then the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of them. Then they are a candidate for this very exclusive group of people called the church. But then it's interesting to me that the New Testament also teaches that the local church, while it's exclusive in its fellowship, it is inclusive in its fellowship. What does that mean? That means whosoever will may come. You know, I was so blessed, Pastor, when you mentioned yesterday about the, I think, the 20 different uh, ethnicities in the background of, of the church immediately, and I think you said like 60 that they could trace their heritage to. That is what a New Testament church should look like. It should look like people from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation from around the world who have been redeemed, and they're brought into a perfect fellowship because Christ is the perfect basis of that fellowship. 
You know, a, a, a hillbilly from Tennessee can meet a former Hindu from India, and they can sit down and break bread and have perfect, joyful love and fellowship together because of Jesus Christ. And folks, that is a miracle of the church. I'm here to tell you, my wife and I have traveled the world. I've had the privilege of preaching and ministering in 50 different countries around the world. And when I meet people who love the Lord, it's like I've known them all my life. There is a bond in Christ. And so Christ is saying, I will build my church. What is the church? It is a fellowship based in Christ. And only believers can be in it, but whosoever will can become a believer if they'll repent and believe the gospel and be saved. Whosoever will may come. What a blessing to sit with the body of Christ from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. Folks, it is a foretaste of heaven because that is what we will do for all eternity around the throne of God. But then the fourth thing tonight, and we've got to hurry, our time is almost gone, the future of the church. Look at verse 18. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, my deity, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Greek word that is translated hell, according to A.T. Robertson, the great scholar who wrote word pictures in the New Testament, he says the word hell is Hades. It's the unseen world of the departed dead. Hades is technically the unseen world, the Hebrew Sheol, the land of the departed. That is, it speaks of death. So when Christ is saying in a very technical sense, the gates of hell shall not prevail, he is talking about the composite of sin and death and ultimately hell that man was plunged into because of the fall of Adam. It's talking about all of that corporately. One of my dear friends that I absolutely love is a guy named Nathan Messler. Some of you may have heard of him before. We had a, we had a great time of fellowship back in April at uh, Ironwood Camp. We were working, Brother Christopher was there, and, and Brother Shoemate, we had some other guys. We had a great time working on uh, uh, core, core competency. And we had a challenge, and, and I've since heard Nathan preach on it, and he was talking and he said, you know, the, the church is going to ring hell's doorbell. I thought that's a pretty good way to say it, you know, we're going to ring hell's doorbell. What does that mean? Folks, the church is the aggressor. The church is the one who comes and stands against sin and death and hell. And the church will conquer sin and death and hell. Why? Because Christ has already defeated sin and death and hell for us. It's not that we can do it in our own strength. But Christ has made us more than conquerors through his victory in the resurrection from the dead. And so Christ said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. You know, Ruth and I have had the privilege of being in some amazing places and missions. We had a family serving down in the, uh, the islands in St. Lucia. And we walked with that family, a, a gifted, well-trained preacher of the gospel, with a beautiful young wife and several wonderful little children. And we walked up a sewer-filled path to a shack that would fit inside our bathroom at home. And it was made out of cardboard and tin. And in that shack was a beautiful St. Lucian lady and her husband who was 
probably the drunk of, of the community. And we had the privilege of going into that home and declaring the glory of Jesus Christ and telling them that they could be saved. And folks, I'm here to tell you there's a church in St. Lucia today and the gates of hell have been defeated there by the power of the gospel. Now, not everybody there is saved. There's still more opportunity. But folks, the church is the church militant and the church victorious because Christ said, the gates of hell will not prevail. So what is the future of the church? Folks, the future of the church is really, really good. Now, I've got some bad news for you. It's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. That's called biblical dispensationalism. But then it's going to get really bad for a while. But then something really great is going to happen. Our heavenly bridegroom is going to come for us, his bride, and we're going to be caught out in the rapture. And we'll be with the Lord for seven years in heaven, his church, with him as a glorious bride. I thought it was so sweet tonight, Dalmas, you talking about your, your bride and, and your affection for her. You know, what you said tonight is nothing compared to what Jesus is going to say about us. And I, I say that in love for you guys. Folks, Jesus loved his bride so much that he died for her. And he is going to present her to the Father as a church that is glorious without spot or wrinkle. And she's going to beam as she's on his arm as he presents her to the Father. And that's going to be a glorious day. But then after seven years of great tribulation on this earth, we are going to mount white horses and we are going to come back with Christ to this planet, and he will establish a thousand years of millennial reign, and there's a lot of, of Jewishness to the tribulation in the millennial kingdom, but the church will be there on the arm of her bridegroom. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, because Christ said the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Folks, we are on the winning side. We have a great future as a church. And then finally, I want you to see tonight the function of the church. And again, this is one of those sections that is somewhat debated, but to me it seems clear. Look at verse 18. I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, my deity, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee. Now, there is debate about whether he's specifically giving it to Peter, though he's addressed Peter or whether he is now collectively speaking to all of the apostles, because he charges them in verse 20 as a group. My personal opinion, I think he is giving the keys to the kingdom to all of the apostles, okay? And I think there's a reason for that, but let's read. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom and of, he of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here we find the function of the church. These words addressed to the disciples are just as pertinent to us today as they were to the apostles. Now, there was an aspect of the apostles receiving the keys to the kingdom that was unique, and yet we are the inheritors of that based on the remainder of New Testament teaching. What do you mean, Brother Stebman? Well, first of all, internally, in the local assembly, in the fellowship of God's people, internally, a primary function of the church is to unlock the treasures of the Scriptures to a fellowship of redeemed people. He says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. 
Now, according to what I've studied, the Lord was speaking to his Jewish disciples about something that they understood concerning the Jewish scribe. When a Jewish scribe was fully trained and authorized to teach his Jewish brethren, he received from his teachers a key. And that key symbolized the knowledge that he had acquired and the right that he had to unlock that knowledge for those whom he taught. So from then on, he either carried that key on his belt as a symbol of his ability to unlock the treasure of the Scriptures, or in some cases, they had it woven into their robe. It was a visible symbol of his authority as a teacher and instructor and also his ability to adequately unlock the treasures of the Scripture. That is the imagery of the keys of the kingdom. Matthew 13, 52 says, Therefore every scribe who is instructed under the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. It's talking about the ability to unlock the keys of the kingdom, to unlock the treasure of the scriptures in the church. Folks, Paul will write to us in Ephesians and elsewhere, and he will talk about how God has gifted the church with men who are pastors, teachers. And it's for the perfection of the body that the body may do the work of the ministry. God has given unto us today leadership who have the ability to take the key of understanding and unlock the treasure of scriptures, and he has given that gift to the church. And, you know, that's why we train people to be able to teach the Word of God before we send them to the mission field. Uh, I believe it's probably true of uh, uh, Brother Ball's approach to training and working with the new appointees here in your mission, but it's true with Baptist World. We have a requirement for a certain amount of Bible that our missionary applicants have to have. We have a requirement for a certain amount of Bible that the missionary ladies have to have if they're going to the mission field. Because the number one thing that those missionaries are going to have to be able to do is to unlock the Scriptures to those people that they win to Christ and they're discipling. And so internally, a primary function of the church is to unlock the treasure of the Scriptures. Folks, that's why we have preaching. That's why we have teaching in this church. It is the primary function. Christ has given us the keys of the kingdom. But secondly, he is speaking about externally, that's outside the church. A primary function of the church is to unleash the message of salvation to a lost and dying world. Look at what he says, verse 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what does that mean? The InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary states that this phrase refers to the authority, to the apostles, to admit into the kingdom of God based on the knowledge of the truth about Jesus. In other words, when they preached the gospel, whoever believed would be saved, they'd be admitted into the kingdom of God, and whoever didn't believe would be lost. Also, uh, Barnes in his notes says of this phrase that God will make Peter and the apostles the instrument of opening the doors of faith to the world through preaching the gospel both to Jews and Gentiles. Folks, do we understand tonight that we have the keys 
of eternal life in the gospel. We're commanded to go into all the world, and if we don't go and we don't turn the key and unlock the gospel for lost people, how shall they believe on him of whom they've not heard? So the great work of God externally is that the church has a primary function to be unleashing the message of salvation to a lost and dying world. That's why when Brother Dalmas and Sister Flo go down and minister in Calvary Baptist Bible College, they understand they're not just teaching students. They're teaching people who will partner with Christ in the building of his church. And those young people will go out and they will evangelize and they'll make disciples and Christ will build his church and they'll partner with him in the planting of local churches. And then they'll train pastors who can stand up and take the keys of the kingdom and unlock the treasure of the word of God and the preaching in the congregation. And then the congregation will be equipped to go out with keys to unlock the gospel and the progress of the gospel will continue and more will be saved and disciples and more churches planted. That is God's plan, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Just as in its beginning, the church task continues to be sharing the message of the risen Christ with those in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Uh, we were sitting last night uh, with the Oldhams, and I asked them a trivia question. And I've never had anybody get this right, so maybe you could do it tonight, and, and I would put a star on your chart, and I would have you sign my Bible if you did. But when we read in Acts about the uttermost part of the earth, have you ever considered what the uttermost part of the earth is? Do you know where it is? And a second question, do you know when the gospel, according to church history, first got to the uttermost part of the earth? Now, if you take the word very literally, the, the, in the Greek there, the uttermost part of the earth refers to the point on the planet that is furthest from Jerusalem. So if you plug in the, the longitude and latitude coordinates of Jerusalem, you will find that it is a group of islands near Tahiti called the Tubai Island Group. That is the uttermost part of the earth. And if you read church history, we have no record in church history of the gospel getting to the Tubai Islands until 1800. It took 1800 years for the gospel to get to the uttermost part of the earth. And there are lots of human reasons why that happened and didn't happen. Well, who was the guy? He was a, a, an English bricklayer named Henry Knott. And Henry Knott wanted to go with Hudson Taylor to the mission field. Hudson Taylor originally wanted to go to Tahiti, but, but the Lord directed him instead to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, he wanted to go with uh, William Carey, originally Tahiti. I'll get my illustrations right. He wanted to go to Tahiti. William Carey wanted to go to Tahiti originally, but it didn't work out, so William Carey set his face toward India. And Henry Knott did not know what to do, but he uh, decided that he would set his face still for Tahiti. And he arrived in Tahiti around 1793. I don't know the exact date. I think there's some debate about when the ship arrived. But he ministered there in the late 1790s in Tahiti, and there were churches established. And then he branched out, and by the year 1800, he was preaching in the Tubai Island group. And the gospel finally made it to the uttermost part of the earth. 
and it took 1,800 years. So let me ask you a question tonight. From Chandler, Arizona, what is the uttermost part of the earth? In other words, where is the place on this planet that where there are people that is furthest from your location here? We are still today to be taking the gospel to our Jerusalem and at the same time our Judea and our Samaria, but we can't forget the uttermost parts of the earth. Did you know today you can get from Chandler, Arizona to the Tubai Islands in less than 24 hours because of the airplane? Folks, we do not have an excuse today for not taking the gospel. Christ is building his church, and he is doing it, but he uses people. And we have the privilege of partnering with him. Have you gone to the Lord and said, Lord, I want to be a partner with you in the building of your church here in Chandler, but to the uttermost part of the earth? Lord, what would you have me to do in partnering with you as you build your church and the gates of hell do not prevail against it. Have you asked the Lord that question? Let's bow our heads together.